today's scripture will be from Ephesians 4, 26, 27. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. <clears throat> be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Raise your hands if you've ever overreacted to something. This should be 100% participation. Now, raise your hands if you've overreacted since the start of 2022 to something. All right. Raise your hands if you've overreacted to something in the month of April. You know, we, we overreact a lot, don't we? Never. Never. My wife is saying never. My, my wife probably thinks I wrote this sermon for her. Just so you know, that's not the case. We overreact to a lot of situations. I, I'm reminded of a, a young boy who was uh, in Sunday school, and the teacher was discussing the Ten Commandments. And after explaining the commandment to honor your father and your mother, she asked, are there any commandments that we have for dealing with our brothers and sisters? And, and the little boy said, yes, thou shalt not kill. And, and we understand that there are times we get so frustrated with people that that's, that's how we feel. But we understand that to kill is an overreaction. Now, here's, here's where uh, one of the statements from Jesus that challenges me the most. It comes in Matthew chapter 5, verse uh, 21 and 22, where Jesus made a comparison between the command not to kill and instructions related to anger. Jesus said, You have heard it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. When I read this verse, it stands out to me that there are times in which my anger may simply be an overreaction, just like a desire to kill somebody could be an overreaction. See, we live in a culture of overreaction. And so this morning, what I want to do is spend some time studying what the Bible has to say about how we react to situations, particularly situations that anger us. You see, the Bible doesn't use the term overreact or overreaction, but, but we understand that to overreact to something means that we respond more emotionally or more forcibly than is justified. And in the context of this sermon, we're specifically talking about such overreaction when it comes to anger. Now, the Bible does have a lot to say about anger. And quite possibly the most famous passage in all the Bible regarding anger, anger is the one we just read, and I'm going to bring it back up again. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now I want to make a couple of observations about this before I transition us into talking about overreacting. First thing I want you to notice about Ephesians chapter 4 is that anger in and of itself is not sinful. The passage starts with the phrase, be angry and do not sin. 
Implicit in that terminology is the fact that you can be angry and not venture into the realm of sin. It is possible. It is possible to be angry without sinning. And we know this is true. We know this is true because God, who is holy and righteous, is depicted as possessing anger on occasion in the Bible. In Exodus chapter 4, when God is recruiting Moses to this grand assignment of leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, we're told in verse 14 of Exodus 4 that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, all because Moses was reluctant, unwilling to cooperate with the rescue mission that God was giving him. See, there are times when the holy and righteous God was angry. But here's the key to God's anger, or at least a key to God's anger. The fact that God is slow to anger. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, God describes himself as one who is merciful and steadfast, but slow to anger. You can journey throughout Scripture, all throughout the Bible, God is identified as one who is slow to anger. That terminology, that description of God as slow to anger means that he does not overreact. It means that he does not become angry quickly. It means that he is patient. So in order to avoid sinning in our anger, we must emulate God in that respect. We must heed the instructions of James chapter 1, verse 19, which says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Because that is the description of our Heavenly Father. It's worth noting that in that same passage, James chapter 1, verse 19 tells us that we must be slow to become angry. The very next verse then says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Isn't that the objective? To be like God? And so if God is slow to anger, we must also be slow to anger. But when we look at that Ephesians passage again, where it tells us to be angry and do not sin, there is something else that we must notice about it. We must also notice that anger becomes sinful when it is utilized for Satan's will rather than God's will. See, if you look at Ephesians 4 once again, the verse that follows the instruction to not let the sun go down on your anger says, and give no opportunity to the devil. Another translation says, do not give the devil a foothold. The idea here is that we're not supposed to create space for the devil to operate. We're not supposed to give him freedom within our life. And it fascinates me that the one place in Scripture where we're specifically instructed not to give the devil an opportunity or not to give the devil a foothold has to do with anger. Maybe that's because anger that's an overreaction is a great place for Satan to operate. Maybe it's because in our anger when we sin, all we are doing is operating on Satan's agenda. Think about it this way. Anger becomes an opportunity for the devil's agenda when it breeds revenge. Revenge is 
that is, a, is that desire to exact punishment for a wrong, especially in a resentful and vindictive spirit. Think Cain and Abel for a moment. Cain's reaction to Abel's better sacrifice was, in fact, an overreaction out of his anger, and it led him to seek revenge, even though Abel did absolutely nothing wrong. There's other ways in which this this happens where our anger becomes an opportunity for the devil's agenda. Another way it does that is through grudges. A grudge is a a feeling of ill will or resentment and is depicted in that relationship between Jacob and Esau after Jacob stole the blessing. And you can see that grudge building within Esau. A grudge that Jacob was wary of for many, many years. You see, we can find different places in Scripture where there are examples of anger reaching that category of overreaction and transitioning into behavior that aligns itself with the will of Satan, not the will of God. Our objective is to give the devil no opportunity. And so when we overreact with anger, we're venturing into the category of sin and allowing our anger to be utilized for Satan's will rather than God's. That's when our anger truly becomes sinful. Now, we spent this time kind of defining anger, kind of defining overreaction even. But really the point of today's sermon is to consider how we can prevent ourselves from overreacting in the future. And what I want to do is I want to go to a, a fairly obscure story in the life of David. It's one of those stories that doesn't get the prominence in his life like D- David and Goliath, like David and Bathsheba. It's about David and a guy named Nabal. It's 1 Samuel chapter 25, if you want to turn there with me. We're not going to read the entirety of the text. I'll reference verses, and you can read the text itself in your own time. But I want you to understand what happens here in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Because through it, I think some practical guidance for overreaction prevention can be found. 1 Samuel chapter 25 occurs during a period of reprieve in the life of David reprieve from Saul trying to kill him. This is one of those rare moments in David's pre-throne life, and she's not running for his life. Saul has relented because two chapters earlier, David spared Saul's life. And so Saul's not chasing him. And during this time, David amasses this group of men who are staying with him, who are following him, who are living with him wherever he is. He's got 600 men at his disposal, but that's 600 mouths he has to feed. So David needs to find a way to care for this group of men. So David takes on the assignment of being a hired hand for a wealthy businessman named named Nabal. Now Nabal according to 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 2, was very rich. He owned 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And so what he does is he hires David and David's men to provide protection for his flocks. You see, he would graze his flocks down in southern Judea. The problem is, that's great grazing land, but the problem is that territory ran next to Philistine territory. 
And here's what the Philistines like to do. They like to raid those uh, grazing lands and take the cattle, take the sheep, take all of the animals that belong to the Israelites. This was just one of the ways they wanted to aggravate and they wanted to prosper. And so the Philistines were a real threat to these shepherds and these men working in the fields with the flocks. So here's what they do. They would hire somebody like David, skilled, trained soldiers to come and uh, provide some sort of security force for their, their grazing flocks. That's the role that David and his men are playing for Nabal. Now, according to 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 4, David learned that it was sheep shearing time for Nabal's flocks. What that essentially means is, it, is it's time to reap the financial benefits of owning sheep. It is payday for Nabal. That means it's time to pay up to David. In that culture, it was understood that if someone provided the security service that David and his men would provide, then you as the businessman, when it comes time for you to gain profits from your herds, then you're going to compensate those men. There's not a set rate. It's just an agreed-upon, hospitable, benevolent act of kindness that you're going to compensate them for their service. So here's what David does. Of his 600 men, he selects 10 of them to go see Nabal to procure their financial payment. When those men arrive to receive funds from Nabal, Nabal scoffs at them. Nabal refuses to give them anything. Nabal turns them away empty-handed. And so David's men return from Nabal, telling David that Nabal is refusing to hold up his end of the deal after David and his men had already held up theirs. And that's when David overreacted. Instead of going to confront Nabal and negotiate a solution, 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 13 tells us that David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapping on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David en route to Nabal. Now that doesn't sound like a negotiation tactic to me. Does it sound like a negotiation tactic to you? 400 men, sword-bearing, marching up to Nabal's. I don't think they're going there to negotiate. I think they're going there to take care of Nabal. David has reached the point he is so angry with the way Nabal just treated him and his men that he's going to go in exact punishment on Nabal. Now, it's there that I want us to pause. Because as we journey through 1 Samuel chapter 25, as you read this story in the life of David, what you're going to find out is that by the end of the chapter, he has become more rational due to various events that unfold. And he doesn't overreact in the end. But I want us to notice the details and sometimes the lack of details in this story because it gives us a game plan for preventing our own overreactions. 
And the first thing I want you to consider is that when it comes to your anger, before you react, consult with God. Now, not once in 1 Samuel chapter 25 does David speak to God about this situation. He never consults with his heavenly father regarding the proper course of action in response to Nabal. And I think that is significant. Because during his life as a fugitive from Saul, David frequently consulted with God before making his next move. You can journey back just two chapters to 1 Samuel chapter 23. And in that one chapter of 1 Samuel chapter 23, David consulted with God four different times. In verse 2, verse 4, verse 10, verse 12. He consulted with God whether or not he should go aid a particular city. He consulted with God whether or not Saul was in pursuit of him. He consulted with God whether or not the citizens of that city he was helping would turn him over to Saul. He consulted with God on every move he made in 1 Samuel 23. And here we are two chapters later, and not once does he talk to God about this situation. Not once does he pray and seek guidance. Not once does he just stop and say, what does God have to say on this matter? In fact, if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 13, where we're told David's reaction, it's interesting because sword, a sword is mentioned three different times. It seems to emphasize that David's reaction was dependent on his military prowess, not on divine direction. And I want you to think back to David's most famous military conquest. Back in chapter 17, when he took down Goliath, the giant, did he have a sword in hand? No. He used a sling and some stones. He was actually made fun of by Goliath because Goliath called him a dog who came at him with sticks. I apologize for this. Something's going on with the attachment here. But think about this. David's greatest victory wasn't because of his ability to wield a sword. It was because he trusted in God's guidance. And now here he is chasing down Nabal without having talked to God at all. See, this is one of those moments where the absence of detail is important to notice. And for us, we need to think, since anger has the potential to become sin, we must admit that within every feeling of anger lies at least a subtle temptation. So we must be careful in how we handle our anger. And that is why it is so very important that we consult with God before responding in anger. Consider what Jesus told the apostles just moments before his arrest. It's in Luke chapter 22 and verse 40. Jesus instructed his apostles to pray that you may not enter into temptation. Specifically, he was referring to the events that were going to unfold that night, leading to his abandonment by all of the apostles, his denial, the denial of his relationship with, by Peter. But I want you to think how wise those words are. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus was instructing his apostles to consult God for the wisdom and strength to avoid sinning that night. Isn't that great advice as we face off with anger? And so we should consult with God 
But let's also consider the fact that, that we, don't, we don't need to ignore the teaching of the Bible on Scripture either. That's the other way we consult with God. We're instructed in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. And then again in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8, we're instructed to put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And don't forget that fits of anger are identified as a work of the flesh, while self-control is identified as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And so my point is that God's Word teaches us that anger is an attribute that ought to be removed from our repertoire. And consulting His Word, just like consulting Him in prayer, before reacting in anger, might cause us to reconsider how we respond. And so... When it comes to how we handle our anger and how we prevent overreaction, start by consulting with God before you react. I also want to mention something else that doesn't really appear in the text, and that is David's consideration long-term consequences. I think David's initial reaction here can be summarized by his son Solomon. In Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12, where Solomon says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Now, David, David feels justified here. He feels that his overreaction is justified because of Nabal's offense. Therefore, it seemed right to him to strap on a sword and go chase down Nabal. But David was reacting without thinking things through. David was not thinking about how his overreaction would affect his future. Had David gone through with the murder of Nabal, he would have compromised his status as a man after God's own heart. It would have made him no better than Saul, who at this point had been chasing David for years to kill him. Just think about how that sin affected David's life when he had Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. So what David needed to do in this moment is stop and analyze the situation soberly. There's another proverb worth mentioning at this point. It's Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 5, which says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Now that's a proverb that primarily addresses one's work ethic. But I think it can have application to how one reacts to frustration. Planning how to respond can lead to success, whereas responding hastily can lead to ruin. The key to such success, though, is patience. Patience gives you time to think things through. Waiting to respond allows you to consider multiple options, to weigh their worth, to consider their, their long-term ramifications. And that initial lack of patience prevented David from seeing the big picture. Remember, I've already referenced this, but Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 identifies patience as a fruit of the Spirit that disciples are expected to bear. And Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 has patience as one of the attributes that we're instructed to put on as God's chosen ones. 
Patience is an expected Christian virtue because wise decisions are seldom made in a hurry, and you will rarely regret things you didn't say in the heat of the moment. David needed to just take a moment to think things through, to consider how his next step is going to affect his future. And that takes patience. You see, if you and I are going to prevent overreaction, we've got to take that moment. We've got to be patient with our response. We've got to consider the long-term consequences before we react. And I think David may have learned something from this incident. Because in Psalm chapter 40, verse 1 and 2, David said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. That, that passage in Psalm 40 depicts a person sinking in quicksand. David here speaks about how he stuck in a situation. But when he turned his attention to God, when he waited patiently for God, he was able to be rescued from his situation. So we need to develop that patience in response, thinking about how what we do next affects the future. There's one final thing that happens in David's story. It's the big piece of the puzzle in David's story. And if we're going to avoid overreacting, we need this piece. We need to choose to associate with people that make us better. You see, when you get toward the end of 1 Samuel chapter 25, you discover that somebody intervened on David's behalf. Her name is Abigail. And she's the wife of Nabal. And I want you to notice how she diffuses the situation. She rides out to meet David when David was en route to Nabal's house. And look what she does when she arrives in David's presence. 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 23 and 24, we're told that when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Here's what Abigail did. She humbled herself before David. She showed humility by bowing down to David, by referring to herself as his servant, by referring to him as her Lord. And she won his ear by treating him respectfully, unlike her foolish husband, Nabal. And then from there, she took responsibility for her husband's failings. Look at verse 25, 1 Samuel 25. She said, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. What a great way to refer to your husband. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. His name meant foolish. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now look at verse 27. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Here's what happens. Abigail shows up. She takes responsibility. She, in essence, said, when you sent those men and they had the interaction with my husband, 
I wasn't there to give them a kind response. I wasn't there to intervene. She indicated that it was her fault because she should have been there to negotiate, to run interference for her husband because she knew he was foolish. And she wanted to make it up to David. So she brought the payment that he should have received. There's a third thing that Abigail does here that's really important. It's in verse 28. She says, Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Here, Abigail reminded David of who he is. She reminded David of the promise God had made to him regarding the throne. She reminded David of his reputation as a man after God's own heart. She spoke in the future tense about his reign, but she spoke in the present tense about his reputation. She didn't say that David fought the Lord's battles. She said that David fights the Lord's battles. She reminded David that he was an agent of the Lord, that he possessed the reputation of dealing with conflicts God's way. She brought David back to his identity. So Abigail, in her wisdom, humbly approaches David, takes responsibility for what just happened with her husband, and reminds David who he is. As a result of Abigail's intervention, David's anger relented, and he was prevented from making a huge mistake. Abigail handled this situation so brilliantly that when Nabal died, David proposed. You can read in verses 38 through 42 how David requested Abigail's hand in marriage after Nabal's death, and she accepted. Now, why did David marry Abigail? Why did, why did he want Abigail for a wife? Think about it. In her wisdom, she not only kept David from making a horrible mistake, but she also protected her husband. She acted without her husband's knowledge, but in her husband's favor. Who wouldn't want a wife like that? And so David's proposal to Abigail teaches us that it's in our best interest to surround ourselves with people that make us better. People that hold us accountable. People that are not afraid to confront and correct us when we're wrong. Shouldn't one of David's soldiers have done that? Shouldn't one of his trusted allies in this moment have said the things that Abigail said? But they didn't. She did. And I believe he saw the worth in a woman that risked her own life to protect her husband as well as her husband's enemy. And David wanted her by his side. That's the kind of people we should be surrounding ourselves with, we should be associating with. That's why Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 26 says, The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. That's why Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And that's why Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. 
all of these proverbial statements are indicating you need to think about who you associate with. You need to be picky about the people you surround yourself with. You need to be very selective about your interactions because those people have influence over your life. And if we want to avoid and prevent overreacting, then we need to surround ourselves with people that hold our anger accountable. People who can calm us, people who can help us make wise decisions, people who can help us see the big picture that we're failing to see in the moment. That's what Abigail did for David. And that's ultimately how David avoided the overreaction he began in verse 13 of 1 Samuel 25. So three pieces of advice for you. If you want to prevent overreaction, don't be like David. Consult with God. If you want to prevent overreaction, don't be like David. Consider your long-term ramifications. And if you want to prevent overreaction, do be like David and choose Abigail's to surround yourself with. One final thought. Which one of these are you? Are you a potato, an egg, or a coffee bean? Of course, I need to explain what I mean. You can take all three of these things and put them in a pot of boiling water, and they're going to react differently. You can put a potato in. It's going to go in strong and hard and unrelenting. But you put that potato in a pot of boiling water, what happens? It softens. You can take that egg, which is so fragile, and you can put it in a pot of boiling water, and it reacts, and what happens? It hardens. You take coffee beans, and you put them in a pot of boiling water, and what happens? It's not so much that they harden or soften. It's that they change the water. It's that they exert an influence over the environment in which it's been put in. They create something new. When you react to frustrating situations in life, which of these three items do you most resemble? Do you become soft, easy, and tolerant of sin? Do you become hard and callous towards people? Or do you seek to change the world around you with a better reaction? All of us need to be like coffee beans, changing the world for the better by the way we handle our anger. This morning we're gathered here with this great opportunity, this great opportunity to respond and react to the gospel invitation. Jesus Christ died for us so that our sins, including our overreactions and our anger, can be forgiven. It may be today that as we talk about this subject, you realize that you're struggling with the sin of anger and you need to repent of it. That maybe you need the help of brothers and sisters in Christ who can build you up. It may be that you realize you're still, you're still caught in a sin that hasn't been forgiven. 
If you need to respond to the invitation today, either to become a child of God by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son, by repenting of your sins and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, or if you need to respond to seek prayers, to seek encouragement, to be restored. Whatever your need is, we offer this invitation while together we stand and sing. Do this for me, do this for me, always.